Carl Jung is credited with the discovery of what he ended up calling the collective unconscious, though his critics might say he invented it because it doesn't exist. Just as our bodies underwent a long period of evolution, Jung argues that our minds did too, and that humanity shares a universal collective unconscious inhabited by archetypes that motivate our feelings, ideas, and behavior. Our reality is filtered through these symbols, but it does so without our awareness. This reality can be brought to awareness, however, and this was the aim of Jung's brand of psychoanalysis, to transform the individual by making the unconscious conscious. This would also be a method for cultural revitalization. But was he right? Today, on The Truth Perspective, we'll be taking a closer look at Jung's ideas, if they have any validity, and where they might be lacking. I'm Harrison Cayley. Joining me today are Ilan Martin. Hello, everyone. And Corey Schink. Hello. Last week, we started our discussion on Carl Jung um, by taking a look at Richard Knoll's book, The Aryan Christ, and some of the kind of surprising and unknown facets of Jung's life and his ideas. Well, we're going to be kind of going a bit deeper, <laughs> a bit deeper into the collective unconscious and some of the specific ideas that Jung had and seeing um, where they might have gone wrong um, or what he got right. Because Jung, Jung gets a bad rap um, from most scientists. Um, we'll see if those are for valid reasons or not. Um, but he's, like we said last week, he's got this kind of um, um, cult following, really. Not just in the New Age movement, but um, there's a whole whole kind of community that looks up to him and um, thinks that he has a lot of valid things to say. And he might. We'll find out. But the core of his uh, core of his thought really comes down to this idea of the collective unconscious. So we're going to be getting into that. What exactly is it? One of the criticisms of Jung's idea of the collective unconscious is that there isn't really any evidence for it. Because um, if you look at Jung's evidence for it, what he did was he would study the dreams and delusions and hallucinations of psychotic patients um, at first, and then, of course, just of his regular patients, and look at the symbols, or look at the kind of character, characters that uh, populated these, these fantasies, and then see them as evidence of a kind of direct connection with um, a reservoir of images and symbols that are characterized or are exemplified in the previous myths and, um, and imagery of um, just human civilizations and cultures. So if a, if a patient would, for example, see something from an alchemical work, he would take that as evidence that both the original alchemical drawing or symbol and the, the patient's um, dream or hallucination were culled from the same source. Um, and he while at first he was open to the idea that maybe the, his patients had encountered these kinds of images before and just maybe didn't consciously remember them, they're just kind of, they're culled from their own personal um, subconscious, he rejected that in, in his later years and never kind of returned to that hypothesis and saw all these as examples of a connection to uh, an access to a collective unconscious. But his critics would say that he was, um, that he basically cherry-picked his data and didn't adequately take that alternative explanation into account. And arguably, they're correct in the sense that when you take a look at world mythologies and what, they, what um, the people who 
the comparative mythologists who study them call like mythemes, like the little aspects of myths um, um, when you break them down into their smallest parts that may or may not be common um, in different cultures, you find that while there is a, a wide uh, a wide sharing of certain mythemes or certain um, images or archetypes, if we want to call them that, that they're not universal, that some cultures lack what in others are considered to be central figures, and and you might have a minority of, of myths that have a, a figure that you don't find in other cultures. So there doesn't seem to be any kind of hard scientific evidence that that, that all of that these symbols are shared universally and pop up universally. Um, the 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 sharing that does seem to be found seems more likely to be found through um, a common origin. So if you go back several thousand years, maybe even tens of thousands of years, you'll you'll have a a storyline with certain characters that then goes through many transformations as these groups migrate and um, kind of intermix with other cultures to the point where you can have what um, one scholar recently in, in the past decade, um, his name's Witzel, um, can't remember his first name, he basically looked at all these myths and divided them up and by looking at the common features found that there were basically two two sets of myths with their own features basically that don't that you don't see the features of one in the other they seem to be relatively separate and that is between the sub-saharan african mythologies and the um australasian from australia and uh, papua new guinea those he groups into one and the other he calls Laurasia, which is basically all of Europe, Asia, and the Americas. And so within those groups you can find similarities, but but you find differences um, when you compare those two big groups together. So it doesn't seem that Jung was right that all humans basically access the same, uh, the same set of symbols in all of their myths. Um, and so I, I think that's a, a valid criticism of, of Jung. He kind of thought that that all humans had access to the same set of symbols and then just at various times would access them um, you know one or the other and and that's why that would account for the similarities that you see and the fact that people in their dreams will bring up certain of these images and symbols um, but is there a, a kind of kernel of truth to the idea I think there is and I think that the um, that Jung's critics are a bit too hard on him because I think what is more likely is that all humans, because we basically share the same hardware and we think the same way to a certain degree, you know, we all think in, in terms of similar categories, we all have, I mean, if you just look at the basic level, you know, we all have memory, we all have emotion, we all have a, a prospective sense, so we all look into the future and we plan and we have aims. There are basic root um, capacities that we have in our consciousness that are universal and there is something universal about human experience and the way we all experience the world of course there are variations too when we get down to the specifics but at the at the most basic level there there are universals in human consciousness and what it seems to me to be the case is that what is shared universally when we look at myths are certain meanings so these meanings would be aspects of experience that we all share and then we then put into symbolic form. The symbols themselves aren't necessarily universal. They may be very similar from culture to culture, 
either just through accident or through um, you know a shared source. But I like the way um, Jordan Peterson frames it. He basically looks at it in terms of chaos and order. So order is the, the explored territory. Chaos is the unexplored territory, the novel, the new, the potentially threatening, but also the potentially beneficial. And then the, the mediator between who navigates that uh, border between order and chaos, between the known and the unknown. And when you have those universal experiences, because all humans at all time have those experiences where they have their known well, their, their known area, which is their own culture, their own people, then you have the vast unknown, whether it is in their own unconscious, you know, their, the, the unexplored aspects of their own consciousness, or just the outside world, it might be a, a neighboring territory, a new people, a new continent. Um, it, and when you, when you think in terms of that, well, that's a dangerous thing, but it's also potentially beneficial. Like I said, um, a new people can be a, a, a huge potential threat. They could wipe out your entire tribe your entire people, or you might learn something from them. You might gain something from an exposure to another people. And when you have those universals of experience, and then you put them in a story form, th that's when the specific symbol gets applied. So the unknown might, might be represented by uh, the feminine, or a, uh, um, a dragon, or you know a sea creature. And those, those features seem to be shared among, for example, European... Uh, mythology, but also into the Near East, Middle East, into Asia, into North America. Um, not so much in um, in Australia and um, Sub-Saharan Africa, but even then you might find similar symbols with, with different meanings. Um, so what do you guys think um, about the collective unconscious? Is it real or fake news? <laughs> I, I I like how you, uh, you discuss about uh, the fact that these... Uh, that Jordan Peterson looks at these symbols in and archetypes in just a completely different way from, well, not completely different way, but uh, with a different attitude towards them than Jung had. Uh, we discussed Jung's attitude uh, last week, but his his way of looking at the archetypes was was to make them seem much more uh, materialistic, as if they had like these archetypes in the collective unconscious. Uh, it was basically like a land populated by beings that could control or that did control uh, uh, human consciousness. Now Jordan Peterson's look at it is more along the lines of it's our general awareness of, of reality that's modeled on things that we know, you know, like the mother is a symbol, can be a symbol, but it's, uh, it's, it has its relevance based on the fact that we all share this experience with mm -hmm. a mother yeah. or the father. We ha we all share an experience or, you know, most of us share an experience with a father or a snake or something that has, uh, that can be used as a symbol to provide a sense of value towards, uh, the unknown. Um, and for, for Peterson, you know, he looks at the world as, a place not of things, uh, or at least in the mythological sense, it's not a place of things, but a place of action, of threat, of, of ways to have to navigate situations um, that's very dynamic. And so he breaks down this symbolic world into three uh, principal archetypes. Uh, like you discussed, the unexplored territory, which is the great mother, uh, explored territory, which is the great father, and then the mediation between the two, which is this 
uh, divine son. And that's, that's his approach towards the archetypes, which I personally am more inclined to because I'd rather, I'd rather see this unconscious in a sense that it is, uh, uh, has as its roots awareness, not, it's not that it has a, uh, you know, this controlling factor, you know, in terms of my awareness, but that, and it's not beings, you know, populating this, the unconscious, but rather that it's society's general way of coping and understanding the world that kind of evolves over time. I think there's a, a usefulness, a utility, uh, if we can look at certain archetypes and how pervasive they are and, and how often they show up uh, in, in literature, uh, in stories, in film, um, you know, you, you, can, you can see in the text of uh, certain films and books uh, that there are these, um, these archetypes that are just there, uh, whether the author or the artist uh, in, intended it for it to be there or not. In fact, a, a, a good argument could be made that uh, even if the, uh, the author or, the, or creator is not conscious of bringing these archetypes into into the story, into the narrative, it's an even better argument for the fact that they exist. Uh, by the same token, um, my question about uh, the archetypes and and their validity, and I guess it's a it's kind of a broad question: is how do we know? Um, how do we know that uh, they exist to some degree on an objective level? Um, separate from uh, us just imagining so uh, because we like them because we're attracted to them well first on the the subject of artists for instance who are putting them into films i think this comes back to Corey's description of what uh, how peterson describes archetypes in the sense that we all for example we all have an experience of a mother at some level there's an experience of that i mean every every infant every child was in their mother's womb for instance there, there is a universal aspect to, um, to human experience in that sense. There are these abstract generalizations to mother, father, child, and the relationships between them. And like uh, Corey mentioned, snake. Now, so, so the way I think about those, um, the terms in which I think about those are somewhat evolutionary. And it's been like that for millions of years before we, before we even became Homo sapiens sapiens there is this mammalian experience of that exact same dynamic. So for, for this entire period of our evolutionary history, we have the experience of mother and father mm-hmm. and, and children and predators. So for, for instance, Peterson talks about the archetype of the, like the monster, the dragon, in terms of, what does he call it? Like the, the, the tree, bear, snake, something. Like, like we have this, this image that is collective <clears throat> that represents the the threat. So it could take reptilian form because for our entire history, snakes have, for instance, represented a threat. And we have certain behavioral um, universals as well that are in everyone. So for instance, we have a, an automatic reaction to when, when we see a snake or when we see something that, that resembles a snake. And our, our vision isn't even adapted to detecting snakes. Um, so this is a, a universal cate- category of perception and of meaning because when we see an object like peterson describes we're not seeing an object we're seeing its its emotional valence its emotional significance what it means to us in the forum for action 
So what it means, what what the implications it has for our behavior in um, just in the world and in the way we interact with the world. So when we're seeing a snake, you know, we're not seeing a snake-shaped object with a certain color. We're seeing a threat to our existence. And so when we think in terms of those categories, you know, that's where I, I agree with you, Corey, about the usefulness of of seeing archetypes in those terms, in terms of these human universals, um, basically universals of meaning. So when we take a look at, at Jung, it seems like Jung took them to a degree of specificity that the evidence didn't call for, I don't think. So when you have like a specific god, like we talked about last week, like the Leontocephalus, the lion-headed god of the, the cult of Mithra, um, Ion, um, that's a very specific representation of uh, of uh, of a being of a, of a god. You know, he's got a lion head. He's a man. He's got a snake wrapped around his body, and you know there are several other very specific features about this this god that don't seem to be human universals. So, I mean, universally, have humans for for millions of years encountered you know this lion headed god wrapped with a snake wrapped around his body? It's like it's no. It, it's obviously like a a symbolic representation of some sort, or a, a better, an imaginative um, creation of some sort. So I don't think the evidence calls for that level of specificity in how he described archetypes, mm-hmm. or, or just, maybe not, um, because I think he did describe archetypes that are very general in nature, like the Great Mother, but that, but he didn't limit himself to those very general, um, universal, amorphous symbols, because if you just take the great mother, that's not very specific. You can have all sorts of representations of a great mother, and any two examples might not look alike. The, the only thing they have in common might be that they're mothers. But if you look at representations of goddesses, for, for instance, in, in various different cultures, you know, they, they can look vastly different. So there seems to be a, a, a generality to what might be construed as these universal symbols that influence our consciousness, but that the but that the, specif- the level of specificity is where Jung kind of went off the rails. Mm-hmm. Now, but if we come back to the question of the potential reality of like actual beings like this, you know, because Jung seemed to, um, on some level, believe that that he was interacting, well, that humanity was interacting with some um, some beings that seemed to have like a degree of um, autonomy mm-hmm. that that it would um, put a lot of people off because it, it's it's basically going back to a, a kind of spiritualism and a kind of religion where these beings are seen as actual entities that have control over our lives and for a lot of people in the modern age that means a reversion to basically out of date um, you know religious almost barbarian levels of thinking like no one would publicly admit to to holding such beliefs and because they'd be afraid of, you know, being laughed out of the room and being perceived as some kind of primitive for believing in such a thing. We can ask, well, why are people, why do people think that's impossible? Why has that possibility been taken off the table? Well, and that comes down to, you know, our acceptance of scientific materialism, because there are several reasons why people reject, first of all, the existence of potentially, you know, actual gods or archetypes. And those reasons are the same reasons why people will even reject uh, a watered-down version of Jung's idea of these collective images of, you know, of the collective unconscious. And that is, well, okay, so here's this collective unconscious. There are images in this and symbols in this collective unconscious. Well, 
how does that exist? How do we all have access to them? Are all of those images somehow in our biology? Like where in our bodies are there? Where in our brains are they? How do we access them? How do they have any influence on us? It's both a, a pagan and a religious idea that there can be this other realm, well, and a platonic idea, that there can be this somehow non-material realm that influences our biology, our action, our being in some way. And that is, that is verboten in scientific materialism because, first of all, there cannot be a non-material place where these forms and symbols can exist. Um, we can't all access them because the only way we perceive anything is through our physical senses and they can't possibly influence, influence us in any meaningful way because how can something that, first of all, doesn't exist, but if it did exist, was non-material, how can that influence us? Because causation is only physical causation. So there's no possible hole in the, in the worldview through which the archetypes of the collective unconscious can have any meaning within that worldview. And of course, I think that worldview is nonsense, but that doesn't necessarily mean I you know, agree with Jung's take on the whole situation. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm just reminded of um, the book Women Who Run With Wolves and how uh, the stories and the archetypes that she evokes uh, in those stories, uh, which, are, which are quite old, suggest that there's a kind of, insofar as archetypes are valid, there is this kind of bidirectional um, relationship that we have with the archetypes, again, insofar as they exist. And that is that, in one sense, we, we can only make use of or become aware of these archetypes if we've read the stories about them, if we see them in context. Mm -hmm. uh, so we become aware of them, um, they are uh, made known to us, mm -hmm. and, uh, and it's through that process um, that we benefit, possibly, uh, from from learning of their existence, of, of how they function, of uh, what they mean, at least in, in the context of the stories. Now, I guess the, the other question is, uh, you know, for Jung, these archetypes, to some degree, were these spontaneously existing um, structures or, or ideas, uh, that he had direct experience of them to some degree. Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, uh, and that would be both inside and outside of his study of, of mythology and, and, uh, and anthropology and, and, and the myths of, of his time. So, uh, yeah, do we want to parse that out a little bit? Well, you, well, just to flesh out one of the ideas that you mentioned about um, how these archetypes and these images have to be made conscious, they have to be brought into awareness, like the basic idea or one of the basic ideas in this Jungian psychoanalysis is that the archetypes will have an influence on you um, without your awareness and without your control, mm -hmm. if you're not aware of them. But once you bring them, once you bring that unconscious into consciousness, then you can basically as potentially escape the grasp of that archetype. It will no longer control you, and then and when you are individuated, you'll be kind of like a complete human being. So, like individuation was Jung's idea of the the, the fully developed, like, whole self, whole human being. And until that point, you are controlled by the archetypes. Then again, you know, he had his experience of his, you know, ritual um, uh, encounter with, right. that, with that being, so there's, there's some strange things going on there, but that's, that's the basic idea. And I think there's some utility in that, too. I mean, just like with Freud, 
the good points that Jung has made have just become common knowledge to the point where now they seem just self-evident. But really, that was a you know a big insight on Jung's part. I think that just the the basic idea that the unconscious, um, your your unconscious tendencies or whatever, will influence you if you're not aware of them. And when you become aware of them, then you can gain more control over yourself. And you can you find that just in mundane uh, examples and experiences of everyday life, where the things you don't know tend to make you make decisions that lead you in the wrong direction. The more you know, the more you know about yourself. The more you analyze your your own relationships and your own kind of the attitudes that you have, the the thoughts and feelings you have that you push below the realm of consciousness that you're not willing to confront, you know those those affect you. And and when you can get over yourself enough to the point where you can look at yourself and and see those things about you, then you can make a different choice. But unless you're willing to take a hard look at yourself, you'll you'll never get to that point. And you'll just complete. You'll you'll just uh, continue being a machine, you know, just acting out automatically. But like we said last week, there are all kinds of other things about about young that are kind of freaky and I guess potentially dangerous too. I guess it kind of kind of comes down to what your what your intention is with this, you know, with your with your approach to what we, you know we're calling the unconscious. I mean, you know, for the everyday practice practical person to you know look at themselves and and to you know basically just try to make their life better they're they're not necessarily going through you know like a Jungian psycho psychoanalysis mm -hmm. exactly. using wolf you know symbolism or you know any anything symbolic that it's just very much uh, a, a struggle and wrestling with reality um, and however that manifests itself and then you know there's there's surely there's plenty of symbolism and everything in it but that's that Seeing as everything as symbolic seems as sort of a handicap to me, it, it seems like like it's a, a veil, you know, like you're just it's just an unnecessary handicap to mm -hmm. just staring things down. Mm -hmm. I had the same thought, Corey, that that uh, so much of the process of um, and we can use the term individuation or or growth uh, doesn't by necessity require looking at archetypes, you know. By the same token. Um, it, the idea of archetypes are very interesting uh, when, if and when they do come up. I think that's another problem I have with it is how interesting they are. Mm -hmm. I think that that right there should it's, tell you that there's a red hair. It's so interesting. It's so, oh, it's so cool. It's so neat. Yeah. It, there's an element of magical thinking that comes from Jung, which I feel like that's, a, or I think that that's a big part of where he goes wrong is that he confuses this imagination uh, with the archetypes. Uh, you know, this very purposeful attempt to um, to imagine, uh, you know, the, himself as the Christ, or to imagine the, you know, gods and and this and that. And he and he, instead of like the the Peterson way of of seeing it, which is very pragmatic and practical, and in terms of seeing the world, in terms of the unknown, the known, you know, and the struggle to, you know, to survive in this form of action, um, to resort to imagination and to kind of bring these these aspects mm -hmm. of imagination in, um, which then becomes a form of worship, 
you know, it's, you know, then, then I think that's where you, you've entered onto the wrong path is when you start to bring in these, these elements that are desirous almost in, a, in and of themselves of worship. And I think at that point, you're like, you just know. <laughs> I, I think you bring up a good point there that there's a, a maybe a level of identification. Uh, somebody thinks or, or of an archetype and gets carried away with, with its meaning, with its power, and uh, tries to you know, accrue this power to themselves because of this magical thinking and this connection they think they've made to an archetype. When, um, you know, at its best, it's really a, a, um, a kind of a, more of a guide, best used as a possibility, uh, another perspective, a way of, a way of viewing things that, um, that might help, uh, perspective in a very kind of natural in, and even mundane way. Mm -hmm. It was so the way I see it. Um, aspects of Jung's approach can be like tools in a toolbox, but they should be limited to that. Whereas Jung saw them <clears throat> as the entire toolbox, like the sine qua non of of human development. That the, this encounter with the unconscious, in his precise terms, was a necessity. Mm -hmm. You know, this this act of imagination, this engaging with these products of your imagination, what was the be all end all of development. Whereas if anything, they're not even necessary. I mean, they can be helpful, but he saw it as like the, the big shebang, like the, the all and everything. And so the level of importance he placed on it was way out of proportion. So we can find helpful things in it, but the way he framed it, it's like if you go down that path and limit yourself to that Jungian perspective, then it, it's just like it's another mental prison. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I want to read a few quotes. Um, first of all, a couple from, um, from Peterson on on young because i think both are are kind of um uh, illuminating in a way so um this is in the preface to maps of meaning peterson's giving his own experience of when he was young and he was having um, um those nightmares regularly like three or four times a week of just absolute um like nuclear catastrophe and um really just r disturbing dreams with like mutilation of bodies and all kinds of crazy scary stuff for, um, especially for a you know a young person, so he says something I had no familiarity with was happening. However, I was being affected simultaneously by events on two planes. On the first plane were the normal, predictable, everyday occurrences that I shared with everybody else. On the second plane, however, unique to me or so I thought, existed dreadful images and unbearably intense emotional states. This idiosyncratic subjective world, which everyone normally treated as illusory seemed to me at that time to lie somehow behind the world everyone knew and regarded as real. But then he gets on, he basically says he ended up starting to read Jung and found, found some interesting stuff in there, but this is, um, this is what he has to say about Jung. Much of the time, I could not understand what Jung was getting at. He was making a point I could not grasp, speaking a language I did not comprehend. Uh, now and then, however, his statement struck home, and so he gives an example. I think that just that's a perfect encapsulation of Jung, mm -hmm. that um, that he's so arcane and obscure, and you can read pages and pages of him and have no idea what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. Then every once in a while, you see something that's like, "Wow, yeah, that that really makes sense." And so, so it's up in the air whether all that all those previous pages, whether he really had a point or uh, or not. Um, you th that could go either way. But um, with that in mind, um, one more quote from Arian Christ, which we talked about last week, 
um, to give some perspective on um, a way of thinking about this, um, like the second plane of reality, like Peterson was talking about, which can potentially be um, more primary, more basic than the everyday reality, you know, our consensus reality that we experience when we're just interacting with each other. Basically, the something underneath the this level of reality. Um, in in this part of the book, Noel is describing Jung's fascination with the uh, the kind of parapsychology of the time, and um, the psychical researchers like William Crookes, who was a famous scientist, but who was also um, really interested in um, parapsychology, as well as guys like uh, F. W. H. Myers and William James, and this other guy J. C. F. Zollner, and this guy I hadn't heard of, but Noel quotes from him. Um, and he says that Zollner, for example, in his book, Transcendental Physics, hypothesized the existence of a fourth dimension of reality as a place from which four-dimensional beings occasionally entered our experience, our experiential world through the filter of the symbolic contents of our memories and mind, an idea that Jung reworked again and again through a lifetime of speculation on parapsychological phenomena. Indeed, we can only conclude that Jung's encounter with his spiritual guru Philemon during the First World War derived from his youthful desire to communicate with the sorts of fourth-dimensional beings that Zollner claimed were likely to exist. <laughs> so I read this and I was like, wow. Because uh, I don't know if... Probably most of our listeners will be familiar with the, the story Flatland written by uh, Abbott, I think, Edwin Abbott, I think the author's name was, where he basically wrote, wrote this kind of fantastical story about these, these beings that live in Flatland, like a two-dimensional world, and their encounters with a three-dimensional being, and how that would be perceived as kind of these miraculous um, um, encounters. And then um, Michio Kaku, the famous um, physicist and popularizer of, um, of science and physics for, um, you know, for the general public, he had a book too where he he made that same point with four dimensions and what a four-dimensional being would be like so i guess zollner was doing the same thing and so just to get an idea of what might be behind um some of young's motivations was this idea of actual uh, you could call them like hyperdimensional beings that, that he would then converse with mm. and and um <laughs> which like we talked about last week i mean it's a kind of a, a pretty far out idea, mm -hmm. but also it makes you question. It's like, okay, if, if that was what Jung was, was doing, well, first of all, well, let's go back to the perspective of Peterson with the known and the unknown and going back to the, and, and basically inhabiting the border between the two. When you encounter the unknown, you're not sure what you're encountering, right? So it could be threatening or potentially beneficial. Jung's attitude, whatever the reality of, of what was going on, was okay. We'll bring it on. Let's see what happens. He didn't seem to to have that uh, necessary fear, which is a protective mechanism um, for for our own sanity. And to to kind of re just repeat one of the points we made last week, he kind of just threw himself mm -hmm. into this like realm of of his, either his own imagination or you know poten potentially something with a, a level of reality. Um, that that we don't know about that is potentially real in some way that we we just can't conceptualize without taking any kind of precautions and just being like well if it doesn't kill me then it's fine 
Yeah, he, he basically, he, she used like an archetypal motif. He basically walked into a den of wolves without yeah. any protection, just like, ah, you know, hopefully they don't eat me alive. Mm -hmm. And then even if they don't, you know, hopefully that I'll be, I won't contract parasites when I come out. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, in, in this respect, it reminds me a lot of the, the New Age movement in and of itself. Yeah. And, um, and quite probably his great influence on the New Age movement and that is this kind of uh, tendency or propensity to uh, want to experience something mm -hmm. um, via via uh, psychedelic drugs, uh, via rituals, um, when in fact a, a lot of these uh, experiencers, uh, people see these uh, mystical experiences, these these occult experiences, um, as you know, they, they mistake it for uh, revelation or epiphanies or, or enlightenment in, in the kind of constructive sense that, that would help them to grow. Mm -hmm. uh, when, when all it is, is uh, maybe some view into another reality or, or level of perception uh, that might have absolutely nothing to do with their betterment, might have absolutely nothing to do with individuation in the sense that that Jung uh, would describe it. Mm -hmm. So, well, uh, yeah, like if, if we take a, a semi scientific approach to it, look at the lives of people who can fit into this category and, and see, let's see how practical or pragmatic or just useful this approach has been. Because when you were talking about that, I just I got the image of all of the people in the, um, in the New Age movement, but also like the, the UFO field who want an experience, want to be abducted by aliens, want to have um, like communications with um, like the, well, if going back to the 50s, for instance, with like the Venusians and the Martians and the, the Jupiterians, and they'd have these, what were very similar to the, the experience Young had in his seances with these beings. And they, they basically took that as a sign of their own enlightenment. And they do today too. Mm -hmm. You can find all kinds of people on the internet who claim contact with um, with alien beings and and that experience gave them like enlightenment it it changed their lives and now in their own minds they're like the like the individuated person mm -hmm. they're at the, the the apex of of humanity they are it they've reached the pinnacle of of existence and through what you know through this experience of, of their imagination basically my point was, well, look at their lives. What have they actually accomplished? Mm -hmm. you, and you look at their individual lives and the way they interact, like in the, like the, the UFO or the New Age field, and it's like, there's nothing going on there. It's, and and the, the psychedelics, too, that you brought up. There are all kinds of people who want to go on ayahuasca trips and, and have an experience of these kind of godlike beings that they encounter, you know, the giant snakes and... And again, like aliens, aliens seem to pop up in all, all these kinds of fields. And, and they take it like this is some kind of necessary and beneficial aspect of their own spiritual development. Mm -hmm. And it's like, they, well, did you ever think that maybe you're just deluding yourself? It's like, maybe, maybe that's not what life is all about. Maybe you should, like Peterson would say, sort yourself out first. Right. Like learn to clean your room. And you know, have these kinds of encounters at you know at your peril. That uh, it's not something you want to be messing around with, because really, um, like even Jung would say, you know, watch out because you this can you can go crazy or or you, you can die from, you know, from an experience like this. 
It's like, well, he was right about that. And, and yet he doesn't follow his own advice, well, in, in, yeah. in, in a sense. But um, yeah, I mean, experience of, of these mystical realms, uh, if that's what they are, as, as a end unto itself, uh, as, a, yes. as a kind of a ego-serving, um, you know, I'm special uh, pursuit that, mm-hmm. um, that, that has its own subculture. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to come back to the collective unconscious as this this kind of um, well this aspect of human consciousness that may have some validity like a shared level of consciousness for instance um, and if such an idea is possible or not leaving aside you know the the archetypes um, because I think there's something to that too and um, I mentioned that there are reasons for why we dismiss that as a possibility today and the scientific community dismisses it because it doesn't fit into their worldview. Just to bring one bit of data that um, I think is relevant for thinking about how this might work. You know, it might seem kind of um, out of left field at first, but um, I think it's relevant, and I'll get to that. And that has to do with um, with ESP, so in parapsychology and in psi research. One of the things that they found in in doing research on like what used to be called telepathy is that it is symbolic in nature. But what's what seems to be the case is that when there's like a, a signal sent, it will be received by the, the receiving end of the, of the communication in a symbolic form. And it kind of has to be translated before it can be understood. But the thing about that is that it's not the symbol being sent. Well, in some cases it is. But if, if, it's like a, if you're trying to get across an idea, for instance, it's not like you're, you're sending the, the precise symbol it's like what you receive is the symbol, and then that has to be decoded to figure out what was what was going on. So there are some funny examples of that where it's almost like there's a um, a kind of visual punning going on, where if it's a person's name, you might get an image of of something that sounds like that name, mm-hmm. or um, or you know a word that kind of sounds like that word, but it's shown in visual form. Like it's very strange the way the way this these phenomena actually <clears throat> actually take place again it's not like the images themselves you could say the images are culturally created but the meaning isn't and that's the point i was i was making before that the it seems like the the meaning is universal but the the symbol and the image itself is culturally contingent young, and young argued the opposite you know that the the image itself is um is universal <clears throat> and then transmitted but what seems to be the case is that we have these culturally experienced symbols of our experience, and that can just be like the, the climate that you live in, the kinds of clothes that we wear, the shape of our tools, the shape of our houses, um, the colors that we use in combinations, the, the, the particular form that our art takes. And you can notice this especially, like you, if you look at the Maya, for example, the, the Mayans had a very particular style of artwork. And you compare that to like Renaissance Italy or something, it's like completely different. You can notice it just, you know, in a split second that, that they're, they're different styles, different forms. So if there's such a thing as a collective unconscious and there's an experience of it, of these kind of universal meanings, they will take a culturally specific form. They'll adopt those clothes um, to, to basically, to, to clothe the image in a form that is culturally known and acceptable. I don't think it's possible for something completely novel to to come out of the imagination. It's like something so foreign, so outside of your experience 
that you had, well, because if, if it was so far out of your experience, you'd have no frame of reference in order to even recognize what you're looking at. Mm -hmm. You probably, you might not even see it because it's just so far out of your experience. So there's always like a, it's this back and forth, this conflict or this encounter between the known and the unknown, where you have all of the shapes and images of your experience from not only your life, but your whole entire culture's life that's collectively shared. And then you have um, novelty. And that's what we see in art, for instance. What is art but a, um, a new combination of shapes um, using the existing raw material that we all have in our experience? So this is the way we're able to get very specific forms like the, the lion-headed god, where you know we have the experience of the snake, we have the experience of the lion and the man, and all the individual um, aspects that make up this symbol. And they are then combined in this new imaginative form that takes, that takes this shape. And that is not uh, a human universal. Like, the lion-headed god is not a human universal. Like, would a... If you can imagine like a culture that it, that has never encountered a feline form before, it's like would they would they be able to see a lion-headed god? I'm guessing not. Mm -hmm. You know, and this would be you know it would be interesting to do some scientific studies on this to actually test it. I'm guessing no, but these are the kinds of questions that I think that if, if Jung wanted to be truly scientific, he would have asked and would have continued to ask for the, what the last like 40 years of his career of his life, but. When he got to a certain point, he closed down any kind of critical thinking when it came to his thoughts about the collective unconscious. But to bring in one other angle about this, um, a kind of collective and historical, like evolutionary effect on, like universal effect on human consciousness, um, there are some other um, thinkers who have come up with similar ideas. And I don't think even influenced by Jung, and one is Rupert Sheldrake, for instance, with his theory of morphic resonance. And like really different theories, it's like they, they couldn't be you know, more different in terms of their specifics. But the, I think that might be, or, or something similar to Sheldrake's theory, might be closer to what the reality mm -hmm. actually would be. Um, so I want to read um, something from a recent book by David Ray Griffin, uh, it's a book on theology, so he's got a, a chapter on evil, and he's um, giving his theory of what demonic evil is. And just to, to sum it up, so without getting into all the details, he's not, he's not arguing that there are actual demons. What he's arguing is that there is such a thing as um, an evil that is at the level that it could be called demonic, and this would be like the anti-good. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not just that it's not good, it's that it's it is aimed at something diametrically opposed to everything that we would consider good. So this would be like the Joker in Batman. It's like um, he do, he doesn't want to <laughs> to to just steal your stuff. He wants suffering for suffering's sake, and it, he'll burn the money that he steals. Like he doesn't even care about the money. All he cares about is the suffering. Like that would be a level of demonic evil in uh, in David Griffin's account. But he has this to say, which I think was interesting. So. Furthermore, this worldview, far from regarding the human mind or soul as impotent, regards it as the most powerful creature on the face of Earth. The parapsychological evidence that the human mind can directly exert far more influence on other things beyond its body, including other minds, than can other animals, is, accordingly, what should be expected. Cases of reported psychokinesis 
can be regarded as merely conspicuous instances of a kind of pervasive psychic influence that is radiating from our minds all the time. From this perspective, we can suppose that we are influencing each other directly, soul to soul, all the time. And we can suppose that through the enormously complex web of psychic influence that results, we are born into a kind of quasi-soul, which shapes our souls for good or for ill, and to which we in turn contribute, thereby adding our influence, for good or for ill, to the psychic ether that will shape our souls. This influence at a distance is, of course, usually quite weak in comparison with physically mediated influence. There is a factor, however, that somewhat balances out the, f the power of these two kinds of influence on us. The distance over which this kind of influence operates can be temporal as well as spatial distance. Because of this influence over time, repetitions of a certain form of activity can have a cumulative effect. For example, if a certain image has been focused upon by devotees of a particular religion for hundreds, perhaps thousands of years, this image will be impressed upon the unconscious portion of the psyches of present-day individuals with considerable power. This, incidentally, is a way of explaining the reality and power of Jungian archetypes, a way that Jung himself sometimes employed. Rupert Sheldrake's New Science of Life is also based on the cumulative effects of repetition. So, basically, it, there's, he's got those three angles, the parapsychology, Jung, and Rupert Sheldrake, and it's this idea that if there is a reality to Psy, which is both a ascending and a receiving co ca uh, capacity of basically information transfer that isn't physically mediated, if there's a reality to that, then it might make sense to think we're always sending and we're always receiving. And we're most of the time not conscious of that, if not like the vast majority of the time. Um, there might be, some people might never even have an awareness that that's what's going on. Mm -hmm. Like it, it is subconscious. Mm -hmm. And if that's going on all the time, if you then take into account the cumulative effects, then that would be where we get examples of these general archetypes. Like there's a cumulative effect on human consciousness of millions of years of, of the experience of mother. And that has an effect on, uh, on human behavior. And Sheldrake would argue that behavior can't be transmitted um, genetically, like biologically. Behavior by its very nature has a, a degree of consciousness and consciousness cannot be reduced to a biological phenomenon. So he'd argue that if you take the genetic code of something, you can't extract behavior from a genetic code. There needs to be something more, some other way of looking at evolution and, and at biology to account for behavior and to account for consciousness. So, so that would be the place to look for something like the collective unconscious. It really in the realm of consciousness, not in the realm of biology. Of course, the but consciousness and biology interact um, very closely. So there, there will be correlations and um, well, strong correlations to the point where you might be able to find genes, for instance, you know, for a certain behavioral thing. Those genes will affect something in the biological structure of of the the person in question, which will then interact with consciousness in a certain way <clears throat> to produce that behavior. But you can't reduce the behavior to biology. Mm -hmm. And that gets back to, to Peterson's breaking down of reality, well, two, as two modes of apprehending reality, one as a place of things, where that's where you have the, the abstracted notions of science, 
where the idea of matter is um, the abstraction of matter is then taken as reality. We have this fiction or this myth of the existence of matter when really that that's a it's an abstraction. It's a it's a scientific myth. Mm -hmm. What we what we are really doing even in science is looking at objects of significance of value mm -hmm. and um, the the miracle of science really has been that humans have been able to to abstract that to the degree where we can find value in something that doesn't have any immediate effect on our own survival for instance so we can so i think he gives the example of the scientist who can spend his entire life motivated and interested by something like you know the varieties of moths right so you have these people scientists engaged in this very specified area of knowledge and and they have interest in it because they're seeing objects of value to them you know for their own um for their own interest and for the you know the development of of knowledge and a scientific base of knowledge and that's really quite remarkable that we can kind of devote so much attention to something that it's, you know, when, when you really look at it, it seems so insignificant, but when you put it all together, you know, that's really why we're where we are in terms of science and technology. It's from this capacity to, to find, to recognize that value and then devote like a, a super streamlined, narrow focus onto, onto all those areas of, all those objects of value. And really what is value? It's implication for action. So what we learn from science can then guide behavior in a certain way. But through the materialistic worldview that we now have, we don't recognize that value as value, as implication for action. So that's the problem with the nuclear bomb. We have abstracted matter to such a degree that we've lost touch with what kind of value does that have and what does it imply for human behavior? Mm -hmm. Well, we could theoretically destroy ourselves because we have lost touch with basically morality, with, with seeing the world in terms of what ought to be as opposed to what is, and basically um, trying to figure out what we should do. Mm -hmm. You know, how should we act based on this information? Instead, we just have the narrow focus on each, on all of these objects of value, but we for, what we've lost the capacity seemingly of... We don't recognize their implications. Right. Um, and, and just, first of all, that was, a, that was a terrific quote by David Ray Griffin. And uh, if anybody's wondering, yes, this is the same David Ray Griffin who's written, I would say, at least half a dozen books on 9-11. More like a dozen. <laughs> More like a dozen now. Uh, very rigorous deconstruction of 9-11. Um, I would say there are very few, if no, people who are, who are as prolific uh, as Griffin in putting out uh, information and real rigorous examination of of what happened that day. Actually, what what you just read just uh, elevates my my value for him <laughs> because uh, w what he has done himself uh, is to put a value on truthful information on on one of the worst events in in modern history. He's kind of affirmed his own idea that information has substance. That the repetition of, of putting out this information, uh, its value uh, in continuing to write these books um, and, and basically laying out what, what is true or, more, or far more true than what we've been told is his kind of embodying of, of, of his ideas that, you, mm -hmm. that you've just read. Yeah. So just an interesting aside, um, 
that David Ray Griffin uh, is not only putting out this information and 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 hoping that it reaches people through whatever kind of non-material, you know, any means possible, uh, but he even discusses it at a distance in the way that the information works. Mm. So very interesting to me. Yeah. Well, I'd say I don't always agree with, with some of his views, um, but I will say about him that he has integrity. Like, he lives out his ideals, mm-hmm. his values. He isn't, a, he isn't a hypocrite when it comes to that. But maybe let's get into last segment of the show today. There was an idea about the unconscious and about psychoanalysis that I don't think we've formulated yet uh, very clearly uh, last week or, or this week. All the parts are there, so it should make sense given the background uh, of everything we talked about. But um, for for Jung, when repressions were removed, that would unleash um, like archaic hidden energies. And he saw mental illness the same way. So mental illness um, eroded you know, what he thought of as the Christian defense mechanisms. And this revealed the underlying kind of pagan archetypes. And so there's this idea that uh, kind of underneath the surface, when you, when you tear away the, the kind of repressive aspects of society and culture, then you get this, this kind of archaic energies, um, what the classicist uh, Walter Burkert called uh, savage energies. And so these would be like the, all the most, um, well, all those aspect, animal parts of ourselves, animal aspects and tendencies of ourselves that we don't necessarily admit that we have and that are covered over by civilization. And civilization kind of acts as a way of keeping those tendencies in check. Because if you look at the animal world, um, without those things in check, we can, of course, see um, a rudimentary morality or ethic in animals, even like um, their, their aspects of fairness and, sh- and sharing. But when you look at um, a predator you know, devouring its prey, it does so without any regard for the well-being or you know, survival of the, the, the animal that he's currently ingesting. And you think about it really like, uh, again, evolutionarily, if we take those ideas of, of behavioral history and the cumulative effect of, of um, consciousness and behavior, um, that all that stuff is still with us. You know, we we still have animal bodies, and within those animal bodies are animal instincts and urges, and um, just overall behavioral tendencies. And civilization does act on those on those tendencies. And one guy that really got into this, I think, in a way that uh, in a much better way than Jung did, was um, Dabrowski in his theory of positive disintegration. And so I went through my Dabrowski books just to see what he thought of Jung. And so there's a section in his book, Psychoneurosis is Not an Illness, where he talks about his thoughts on Jung's conception of mental illness, or what does he call it, psychoneurosis and development. So Dabrowski points out that Jung attributes inner disharmony to some deviation in human development from primitive to cultured. And some instincts like hunger, for example, get weakened, while others get strengthened, like sexuality. So, of course, because we live in this cultured environment, we don't, uh, the majority of us, at least in our, you know, in our society, don't have to worry about food. And so that isn't as much of a drive on our behavior as it used to be. And so for Jung, that drive being mitigated to some degree is balanced out by an increase in the sex drive, for instance. But for Dabrowski, inner conflicts are actually appropriate and even accelerated forms of human development, uh, they're fundamental. 
Um, but for both Jung and Dabrowski, they viewed neuroses as signs of an attempt at inner synthesis. So there is a conflict going on, and the fact that there is an inner conflict, an inner struggle, is just a sign that that uh, conflict hasn't been resolved yet. And Jung found the source of conflict in the collective unconscious, like we've been saying. Now, his criticism of Jung was um, that the theory of archetypes and the collective unconscious are full of hypothetical assumptions, vagueness, and do not appear to be of much practical significance. He said that uh, the approach doesn't distinguish between different levels of mental functions, leaving Jung without a basis to clearly delineate the developmental path of man in relation to all basic functions, intellectual, emotional, and instinctive. He also wrote, the structure of the collective unconscious and the individual subconscious have to be transcended if one is to move on the way to consciousness and superconsciousness. And for this reason, an equilibrium between the two levels cannot exist. The equilibrium can be achieved only when the individual attains the higher level of consciousness, which controls its lower levels. The way to such equilibrium leads through disintegration and psychoneurosis. Jung's conception of the relation between suffering, pain, joy, individual ecstasy, and identification with these states in others, and in relation to the whole world, is not quite clear. It seems as if Jung did not offer attempts at solving the difficulty of preserving and deepening the relation between I and thou without a loss to each involved. I and thou is a reference to, I think, Martin Buber's uh, philosophy, basically of um, kind of a deep, unique, um, like pair-bonded relationship. So he says all these Jungian concepts indicate lack of a unified approach to psychoneurosis as a positive uh, process of development. And then finally, he says, the principles of Jung's therapeutic education are not clear. The theoretical vagueness of the problem of the collective unconscious, which Jung considered in therapy necessary and important to separate and differentiate from personality, does not help one to be convinced of its therapeutic value. The interpretation of the unconscious contents must necessarily remain unclear and does not give a basis for systematic psychotherapy. Um, and then, I think not knowing Jung's actual biography, he writes, Nevertheless, one must assume that Jung's extensive psychological knowledge and his profound insight enhanced his effectiveness as a therapist. So, so he's basically saying if, if Jung was a good therapist, it was only because of you know, his insights and it had nothing to do really with, or very little to do with his actual theories and methods. Mm -hmm. um, and even that might be you know, overly generous. Well, there are um, several indications that you know, maybe he wasn't quite the, the great therapist that uh, everyone thought he was. And for that, you can check out Noel's books, in fact. So I just thought that was interesting because Dabrowski arguably has one of the, the best systems of, of personality development that is rooted in everyday life and, well, pragmatic and practical. And it's all about, um, you know, living in this life and not descending into imagination and fantasy in order to divine the path of, of your development. Now, he thought one of the good things about Jung was that there was a prospective element to it, there was a teleological element to it, and that meant basically just a future-oriented, goal-oriented, aim-oriented aspect. But for Jung, what that was is that he would basically said, okay, look at your dreams, and your, your dreams will tell you what to do. And so you'd follow your dreams and just take the path indicated by your dreams. Again, without the awareness that maybe there are aspects of yourself or, or your unconscious that want to lead you down the wrong path. It's like you can't always trust your imagination or your unconscious to guide you on the right path. And this was actually a criticism that 
someone, I can't remember, it was in it was in Noel's book, but one of Jung's critics at the time might have been a Freudian or just someone of his of his acquaintance. No, no, it was an article that was written um, that um, that was critical of Jung's theory. And the argument was basically that Jungian analysis reduced people's free will because it, they basically put their free will into the hands of the automatic part of their, themselves that was expressed, for example, in dreams. So it was basically like a method of divination. Like for, imagine a person who will only make a decision after consulting some divinatory method, right? So they might have to roll dice first or, you know, conduct the I Ching or whatever. And that's the, those are the only decisions they make. They don't make any decisions without, or any significant decisions without consulting this. As opposed to, I mean, I don't think that there's necessarily anything wrong with divinatory methods, but you should, I think you should probably use them as a check on your own decisions, right? You can't, you can't hand your will over to some external source and then you live your life that way. It's like going to a, um, a psychic and, and putting yeah. all of your faith on, on what the psychic says. Mm -hmm. And like what you were saying a little earlier, Corey, about the, the sense of magical thinking involved um, in, in putting all one's faith and thinking and action into uh, <laughs> kind of this nebulous uh, information that you're given by sources that can be completely false. As an example of what Dabrowski was talking about, because one of the criticisms he had was that Jung didn't focus enough attention on the different levels of mental functions. Because um, in, the, in the bit that I, that I just read out, um, Jung, for instance, he, he saw the conflict between drives, so between the hunger, between hunger and sexuality, for instance. But within each of those drives is a, there's like a, a level of, or a, a hierarchy of values. There's a, a multi-level system. There's a lower level of the hunger instinct and a higher level. You know, there's a lower level of the sex instinct and higher levels. There's division within each kind of function of the human indiv individuality, whereas for Jung, he seemed to see them as, as just one thing, right? You had the, the sex instinct and the hunger instinct. Um, whereas for Dabrowski, he saw levels within each of these. So, for instance, like with uh, sexuality, he divided sexual behavior into five levels, like he divided everything into five levels. And at the lowest level, for instance, um, he saw sexual behavior as marked by a lack of sensitivity and consideration for the needs of the partner. Sexual needs are imposed on the other without a feeling of personal relatedness. The other is an object of sexual gratification. In consequence, a human relationship of love cannot be formed. Equally, there is no parental responsibility. Um, at this level, there's a lack of, you can see a lack of consideration for the age, state of health, emotional condition of the partner, little inhibition in the use of force, little inhibition in sexual expression in the presence of others. Sexual behavior is understood primarily in terms of its physiology, and there's the absence of retrospection and prospection in sexual life. Basically, no analysis of your past and future attitudes and behaviors. Mm -hmm. It's just like, it's just pure biology. It's pure animal behavior. And he even gives the example of, of rapists and, even, and psychopathic rapists who will then, you know, murder their victims. But as, at, at higher levels, you, say, you see different phenomena. So, like at level two, he'd say that uh, sexual tension builds up easily, often with some inclination towards perversion, but not without the consent of the partner. So there's some consideration for the partner, but still something else going on there. Um, there's a certain sensitivity and responsibility for the partner and the family, 
but because it is generally weak and unsteady, it cannot be relied upon. So there you've got some you know, father or mother who expresses some parental responsibility and concern for the partner, but it's like a, it's ambivalent. It, it, it can be there one minute and gone the next. And so overall, sexual behavior is governed by diverse tendencies. Um, occasionally they cooperate, but more often there is manifest need for a variety of sexual experiences, which may be unexpected and inharmonious. Stability and exclusivity of emotional bonds is not understood and is not sought. Instead, there is the facility for turnover of the objects of love. Now, as the levels go up, you see more of a need for exclusivity. He writes that exclusive attachments lead to strong sexual inhibition, even impotence when the partner leaves or dies. At level three, you can find people that are, uh, are surprised or embarrassed by the strength of the biological level of sexual impulses because they arise easily and unselectively. The urge is inhibited, loses tension, and subsides without a need of actual release. A negative attitude arises towards the sexual instinct in oneself. Shame and guilt loosen the cohesive primary structure of sexual instinct. They inhibit and weaken its biological level of control by bringing it to the higher emotional level of exclusivity and responsibility. Guilt generates a sense of responsibility. Guilt here acquires the deeper meaning of feeling responsible for failure in loyalty towards one's ideal, for betraying one's ideal. Identification and empathy introduce the emotional components of attention to the subjective needs of the partner and of selectivity and exclusivity of relationships of love. Sexual behavior becomes a function of the more significant and more pervasive process of building a relationship. And it goes on. For Dabrowski, he saw that as the sexual instinct was sublimated or brought to a higher level, that at the highest level, there's you see the highest level of an exclusive bond, a unique relationship. It's unrepeatable and the, the highest level of responsibility for the partner and the family. So all this is just to give an example of the way he viewed just one, one aspect of human consciousness with this multi-level structure. And Jung didn't seem to have much awareness of the multi-level structure of all these instincts and drives. And we see that, for example, in his experience with Otto Gross, mm -hmm. who kind of converted him to polygamy. Jung, it seems, saw a lot of the civilizing influences on human behavior as repressive and as, uh, as oppressive, almost like the evil patriarchy, you know, putting a, a hamper on, on just what should be healthy human sexuality. But for Dabrowski, it's like, well, well, what is healthy? Is healthy just un, undifferentiated automatic um, behavior, just following your impulses? Or is there a value to the civilizing influence of culture and society well, and even then, transcending that level, like transcending just what people think, is there value in and of itself of developing, on top of that sexual drive, an exclusive emotional bond? You know, basically, what's more important in your sex life? Is it just a licentiousness and sleeping around and getting what you want now? Or is it developing that, uh, that sexuality in the context of a meaningful relationship and a meaningful family life. Well, Dabrowski would argue the latter, that in order to be a civilized human, the sex drive must be sublimated. Most people understand that, at least on the, the societal cultural level. What do most people think when they just see totally uninhibited sexual behavior? Like, you know, a couple, you know, just going at it on the side of the street or on the bus. Not only is it not socially acceptable, you know, what does it say about those people? 
do they think that that's socially acceptable? Why are they doing it? Maybe they get some kind of pleasure out of making other people uncomfortable and disgusted, but there seems to be, instinctively, we have these multi-level reactions to, to sexuality, and that arguably is a good thing. Dabrowski would argue that society and culture are a level to be transcended, but society and culture do have a positive influence in and of themselves. Um, not always, but one instance that we kind of referenced last week was enforced monogamy, right? So this was the controversy that Jordan Peterson got in recently for saying enforced monogamy was a good thing, and people were like, oh, how can you say such a thing? And really what he was talking about was marriage. <laughs> you know, having a an exclusive relationship, a one-on-one -on -one relationship with a partner and staying in that relationship and not being, basically not being polygamous for many reasons, but for this very basic reason that in polygamous societies, for instance, what, what you end up getting is a small number of males who basically possess a large number of females and that reduces the access that all the, the rest of the men have to, to find a partner, a sexual partner. That creates the environment for violence and mayhem, basically. I, I was thinking about what you discussed concerning Dabrowski and the, the difference between his and, and Young's uh, ideas relating to multi-levelness. Because I know that you know Jordan Peterson has discussed this too. Uh, I don't think within a, a Dabrowskian type of framework, but the whole idea that in order to move forward in life, you have to you have to change and you have to make sacrifices, and often that involves some form of a disintegration. Uh, you know, like you're talking about just in terms of relationships. Uh, when if you're going to move forward in how you in your relationships with people, you have to evaluate. The, the issues that have come up before and how you've contributed to those issues and you have to be able to um, you have to be able to sacrifice that part of you that's something that Jung couldn't do that's something that you know the Jungian psychoanalysis uh, his theory doesn't really make room for is this, this sense of personal disintegration personal sacrifice mm -hmm. personal change and uh, and the guilt too, I think, mm -hmm. you know, guilt is a, that's a big part of Dabrowski's framework. There's an internal, uh, at, at, you know, at a stage of development, you, you, you bring in this internal guide, uh, you know, like a conscience, I guess you could say uh, that, that tells you when you've been, that when you've yeah. wronged, when yeah. you've sinned, you know, against your aim, your goal, against what's greater and, and mm -hmm. bigger than, than just you. And that, and there's, um, and as you, you progress along that, you know, the, like you said, society is something that, you know, it has tyrannical aspects to society, any kind of order, any ordered system has tyrannical aspects, but it's also there to help you. And it's also there in the rules that they have, they might be, you know, some might seem stupid or tyrannical, depending on what society that you're living in, but they are, you know, probably tried and tested in a number of different mm -hmm. ways. And so you have to be able to play the game. You have to be able to play by the rules in order to take on and criticize those rules in order to transcend those rules. So mm -hmm. you could have, uh, you know, like this, in terms of relationships, like you, you discussed the person who, uh, you know, just is copulating on the street, yeah. on the side of the street. You know, when you see that that individual, you think there's nothing to that person. That's an yeah. animal. Yeah, that's what you think. And then, you know, if you're Donald Trump, you get <laughs> slambasted for saying that. <laughs> people are <laughs> animals. Things, those, those people are animals. But well, you're that. That's the difference. There can be a greater difference between you know two different people more than there is between a man and an ape, you know, mm -hmm. when you see. Yeah. <laughs> I want to say something about what you said about guilt, 
because I think the kind of Freudian and even Jungian analysis would be that if you're feeling guilt, it's because you've transgressed some kind of civilizational uh, rule uh, on your behavior. And you feel guilty because you've gone against what society um, says is right or wrong. And what that perspective ignores is that maybe it's not that you're transgressing a societal norm, mm -hmm. but that you're actually sinning against your own soul. You're going against your own value structure. Mm -hmm. And that's a hint from your subconscious, from your unconscious, that you screwed up, that you did something wrong. And really, what situations bring up guilt? I mean, usually as humans, it's, it's in our interactions with each other. I did something to that other person that I'm remorseful for. Mm -hmm. And what does that tell you? That tells you that you made a worse choice, and that guilt is then the motivation in the future for making a better choice, for becoming a better person. Guilt is actually the force that does that. So for all those people that think that guilt is this bad emotion that you should never feel, and that um, if only you know we could just get rid of the societal strictures on our behavior so we never felt guilt, things would be great. Well, those people are on the, the road to a personal hell um, because they will never become anything more than they actually are. Because you can only do that if you're dissatisfied with the way you are. And that's, I think that's why Peterson has been so successful and his message is resonating with so many people because he tells people, he, he says, you're not perfect. You're anything but perfect. You're a horribly flawed individual. You are not who you could be. You could be so much more than that. You have to realize that first. And, and he'll say, and everyone knows that. And I think that's one of the reasons he's so effective. He'll be able to convince someone just by his own charisma that they are not what they could be that they are actually a pretty reprehensible person, but that they could be better, and here's what you can do to actually be better. Well, when he says those things, you get the sense that this is a conversation he has had with himself. Yeah. So he, he's not saying anything uh, from a pulpit, from a high horse. He's saying it uh, as someone who's experienced these realizations, who has uh, grown as a result of natural guilt, of, of guilt that, as, uh, as Corey said, you know, or a reflection of conscience more than anything else. Uh, but just to make a quick distinction here, you know, there are various kinds of guilt. Some people feel guilty for everything. They're yeah. high in neuroticism, and that isn't healthy either. Mm -hmm. uh, some people are easily manipulated and, and are induced into feeling guilt for things that perhaps they shouldn't feel guilty about. Mm -hmm. So like, like everything else we're talking about here, it's important that we work to make distinctions between um, between these things so that we can map our own growth as, as, as well as possible. Mm -hmm. I would just add, uh, so there is um, an individual, uh, an Anglican uh, person who's um, very highly um, involved in the Anglican church who wrote a paper called Carl Jung and the Gnostic Reconciliation of Gender Opposites. His name was Ed Hurd. It was written in February of 2009. And um, he, he doesn't have very many positive things to say about Jung along a lot of these lines that we just discussed. He thinks that Jung was, is a big part of uh, postmodern thinking. And like we were saying last week, Corey, a lot of this is very subtle. Uh, it, it hasn't been overt. Uh, it's, it's flown under the radar to, to quite a degree. But uh, there, there are a couple of things that um, I thought were interesting that he said. One of them speaking directly to sexuality. He said, part of the gender bending and gender blending of our postmodern culture is rooted in Jung's androgynous teaching about the so-called anima and animus. 
In the Jungian Matter of the Heart video series, Dr. Joseph Jane Wheelwright comments, This is built into the heart of Jung's whole psychology, that one should develop one's contrasexual components, as Margaret Mead so quaintly phrases it. Jung prefers to talk about the anima and the animus. All of us who are really committed and involved in the Jungian world are very busy trying to develop our animuses or animas. This androgynous or almost androgynous state of being is the way that one hopes to be before they throw the switch. Dr. Richard Knoll comments about Jung's pansexual practices. Emma Jung did not choose polygamy freely. That's his wife. The situation was presented to her by her husband. At best, she freely chose to adapt to it. In a letter to Freud dated January 30, 1910, Jung wrote, The prerequisite for a good marriage, it seems to me, is the license to be unfaithful. Uh, so, <laughs> that, that speaks to Jung's kind of baser uh, instinct towards sexuality and towards the care of his own wife, uh, who maybe she said she chose, she freely chose to adapt to his uh, proclivities, but... Um, you know, you have to imagine that she was pretty unhappy about that. A couple of other things. There's a lot in Jung that suggests a kind of morally relativistic approach to values. And Hurd says, in a comment reminiscent of our postmodern relativistic culture, Jung said of Hindu thought, good or evil are then regarded as, at most as my good or my evil, as whatever seems to me good or evil. We must be aware, said Jung, of thinking of good and evil as absolute opposites. The criterion of ethical action can no longer consist in the simple view that good has the force of a categorical imperative, while so-called evil can resolutely be shunned. Recognition of the re reality of evil necessarily relativizes the good and the evil likewise, converting both into halves of a paradoxical whole. So what Hurd seems to be getting at here, and, and mentions it further in his uh, analysis, it appears that in some places Jung didn't put a value on aspiring to do good. Yes, I guess there's, a, there's some, some utility in acknowledging that evil exists, uh, and it has a place in the world as good does, but he didn't, um, there was very little about, that I could see, that, that affirmed in the sense that Dabrowski would, uh, what is good? What is good for the individual? What is good for the other that the individual is in relationship with? So that's kind of troubling. Mm -hmm. One or two last things that's mentioned in this article. Uh, he said, you may be asking yourself, how much influence does Jungianism actually have on the church and postmodern culture? The answer is that there is an enormous and sometimes subtle influence. Jung's direct and indirect impact on main mainstream Christianity and thus on Western culture, says Dr. Satinover, has been incalculable. It is no exaggeration to say that the theological positions of most mainstream denominations in their approach to pastoral care, as well as in their doctrines and liturgy, have become more or less identical with Jung's psychological symbolic theology. Now this is very interesting. Um, because th this is a guy who's very involved in the church and who has seen how he's kind of become the new god or the new shaman for a lot of mainstream Judeo-Christian tradition. 
So just a very interesting perspective to me to, to hear someone so involved in, uh, in, in the church talk about uh, the pervasive influence that Jung has had in very subtle ways that he has been able to see for himself. Mm-hmm. But uh, like last week, we talked a little bit about the implications of, of Jungian thought. And uh, we're also just trying to, I think, see what his influences are in, in some of the uh, developments in, in Western society. So one of the big developments we've been noticing in the past year or two especially has been gender dysphoria. This kind of malady among many young people who've been gripped or possessed by the idea that they should be the sex that they were not born into. And it, it's basically exploded. There's been um, a lot of writing on it, uh, especially from the left that would defend and even promote this idea uh, in, in the interest of supporting the people who were confused. But I, I found it interesting also that uh, there's a Jungian analyst named Linda, or rather Lisa Marciano, who wrote in the Journal of Psychological Perspectives, a quarterly journal of Jungian thought, and she takes a very common sense view of, of all of this. Uh, she quotes Jung in saying that there are these psychic epidemics that have to be resolved, and uses as an example this gender dysphoria, uh, but also just brings a lot of common sense to the subject and, and talks about, yes, you can be supportive of people who are confused, but takes the position, the correct position, I think, which is not to jump into surgery right away. And she gets into it in quite a bit of detail. But I, I think the larger point that needs to be made here is that there are a lot of Jungians out there, uh, or people who, who ascribe to being Jungian therapists, who will look into the body of text of Carl Jung and, uh, and use those most constructive parts of his body of work. And who, you know, just like the Bible or any other text, they, because of their nature, they have projected their own values onto his body of writing and, and have used that to be constructive. Uh, so I just thought it was interesting in, in distinction to, you know, all of the other kind of so-called Jungians uh, and, and people who've ascribed to his ideas who have, who have hurt society, uh, who have hurt individuals in bringing ideas that have been interpreted uh, possibly in the way that he meant them. But uh, th- there are a lot of people who ascribe to his work or, or look at his work in the way that a, a priest would find those most constructive gems about the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have Christians who believe in end times and... and uh, in the most kind of narrow-minded, dogmatic way, will interpret passages in the Bible to justify their own bigotry and, and hatred. And then you have a, a whole other set of Christians who will read uh, the same text and extract those points that are, are constructive and Christian in the highest sense of the term. So just an interesting point that uh, there are a, little, a lot of people out there who, who may consider themselves Jungian who don't fall into the trap of uh, interpreting things in the most kind of narrow and and unhelpful ways. Mm-hmm. All right, I think we're going to end it there. So thank you everyone for tuning in. 
If you want to check out some of the works that we have been talking about, they have been, uh, again, Richard Knoll's book, the books, The Aryan Christ and the Young Cult. And uh, I also quoted from um, the book that I took the David Ray Griffin quote, quote from was uh, Process Theology. That was just published uh, last year or the year before. And, of course, we talked about Maps of Meaning from Jordan B. Peterson. So if you want to check out some of those, uh, they've got a lot of great stuff in them. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll be back next week. So everyone take care and don't get trapped in the collective unconscious. So bye-bye, everyone. Goodbye. Bye. Thanks, guys.